Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. This podcast is going to be a little different than the other ones. We're actually going to do real-time scope mounting with you guys. So we want to do a podcast talking all about scope mounting, being that it is a very important process to the overall accuracy, really, of your rifle or your entire setup is the actual mounting of the scope. And so actually, we're going to do it now while mounting up a scope during this podcast. So hopefully, guys, if you got your rifle and your scope and your rings all set out with you now, and you want to mount it, follow along right with us here. And uh, hopefully, like you said, it's going to be kind of real time with you guys. You should be able to just follow along. You won't have to do a bunch of rewinding as we go through. So anyway, we got Jimmy here, Mark, Eric, and Ryan Muckenhern. Fairly typical crew. I think everybody's been on here at least once before. Ryan Muckenhern is going to be doing the scope mounting here. And uh, Ryan, okay, let's talk about, first off, let's make sure everybody here who's listening has the right equipment and gear. Yes. A couple things to make this a very easy task. Uh, Tools, hand tools. I have in my hand right now a T25 driver handle. This particular style of handle matches the fasteners that we have on our rings. Um, So this is going to be ring dependent. Uh, If you're running a pair of like our precision match rings, um, they all use T25 fasteners on the 30 millimeter, 34 and 35 um, so that's a great way to go there. Get a good T-handle uh, or a set of T-handles to match the fasteners that you have. A torque wrench, super critical part of this build-out. Um, the torque wrench is a lifesaver, a tool that if you do invest in one, you will find you use it often uh, and regular. And not just for mounting scopes, but checking action screws. If you're a cyclist, you can use it there too. Uh, anywhere you might need a proper application of torque. Work on cars? Um, yep, yep, anything like that a proper bit for said torque wrench. Again, a T25, because that is the only fastener we'll be running. Um, I have a series of levels as well. Uh, Leveling your rifle scope is pretty darn important. So you want to make sure that you have a good set of levels. I'm using uh, a particular level from our friends at CTK Precision. They make one of the most nifty levels on the market that you can actually use to level your rifle and then level your scope. For the top of the scope, we're going to use a simple bubble level, uh, just a flat bottom, good square true level. Anything will work, really, if it's just a basic bubble level. Uh, We want to make sure that the optic is then level to the gun, and we'll touch on that a little bit bit more uh, as we go here. Uh, Other than that, a sturdy vise. Uh, We've got a tipped-in best gun vise in front of us here. This is one we use a lot at the shop. We've got them in uh, various areas all around Vortex here uh, for doing just this. It's a very secure and, and relatively inexpensive gun vise that, that allows you to hold your firearm secure and, uh, you know, do a little tweaking here and there if you need to turn it left, right. It's got all sorts of adjustments on it. Very handy tool. Sweet. And then for a scope, we should be safe saying this by now, we have the Diamondback Tactical First Focal Plane. As of recording this right now, it's it's very close to being released, but by the time this releases, you'll all probably know about it. Very exciting scope. We're actually going to take this on the Ruger American we're mounting it on out to the Vortex Extreme. Eric here, you getting pretty pumped. I Eric's can't gonna wait. shoot this thing. Yep. What's the furthest you've ever shot right now, Eric? My furthest, well, so at the range I've shot out to 200, and I shot a deer once at 170, give or take. That has been it. Bam. Never, never shot anything with exposed turrets, never dialed turrets, anything. And here we are, a few days out, mounting the scope to the gun that I'm gonna have to dial the turrets. We're on. gonna take it out there. <laughs> and we, plenty of preparation. Yeah. Plenty. Yeah. Gonna be great. 
we're gonna we got a great guy mounted up for you because Ryan Muckenhorn here has mounted a bazillion scopes in yeah. his lifetime. And accurate number. Um but Ryan, you've mounted scopes in some precarious odd ways and we're gonna kinda stall here for a little bit because for those of you out there, maybe you're uh, quick scrambling to acquire some of the gear Ryan Muckenhorn here has just mentioned. So uh, take your time there. We'll we'll talk for a little bit while you get that set up. But Ryan, you've mounted scopes in some obscure locations in some obscure ways, sometimes at the range, mm-hmm. and yet you've still managed to get them nice and level, mm-hmm. well torqued, fully so torqued. to speak, fully yep. torqued. Okay, I yep. was trying to avoid it, but then you just, okay, <laughs> all right. But uh, so so one of these items is like absolutely essential. The hand tools uh, paramount. The torque wrench is such an importantly critical tool nowadays. I can't tell you enough, folks who are listening, and you've heard in our other podcast before when we talk about proper mounting, the torque wrench is such a lifesaver when it comes to this because truly the number one reason we see rifle scopes come back to Vortex uh, for repair, if there's a perceived issue, it's actually that they're just over torqued. Uh, And so the torque wrench prevents that from happening in the first place. Uh, If I can recommend one tool here, it's the torque wrench. In fact, if you buy a Vortex torque wrench, we include every bit for every fastener that we use on our mounting applications. So if there's something, you know, a little bit out of the ordinary or strange that you might need, you can pick the bits up for relatively low cost at your uh, hardware store. And that is the singular tool that you would need to really accomplish a good mounting, uh, even in the field. And I've mounted scopes in the field on hunts. I've had to remove scopes, put new scopes on, and a torque wrench will, will be that lifeline, that savior tool there. It's, it's really an item that's going to potentially save a person a lot of time, oh, a yes. lot of frustration, and a lot of wasted ammo and fuel going, you know, wasted ammo at the range and fuel going to and from the range, mm-hmm. which, you know, all could have been uh, really a non-issue. Right, because you know? essentially what we're trying to avoid having happen is you have an external tube, which would be like, in this case, it's a 30-millimeter tube, the one that you're, you know, people are usually familiar with. It's a thing that your rings grab onto. Yep. But there's an internal tube in there called your erector unit, and that's what actually has the reticle connected to it, and that's what your turrets push on and move around when you're adjusting your point of impact or your point of aim. And uh, essentially, if you over-torque that outer scope tube, it can impinge some of the internals, which are very precise and very critical to holding zero and dialing properly at various different distances or, or, or zeroing in. A lot of times we'll hear people say, hey, I'm running out of adjustment, right? Would, Ryan, would you say that's a pretty popular Absolutely. One? Hey, I, I don't have enough adjustment in my scope to get this rifle zeroed. I seem to be dialing and dialing and dialing and nothing is happening on the paper. Or I'll dial and dial and dial and dial, and then all of a sudden, boom, it moves like 20 M away out of nowhere. It was going nowhere, and then boom. Usually that's that's something was impinged in there and it finally broke free because it had enough force applied to it. So this is really, really important stuff. Ryan, you had a story because you used to you used to mount back in the day. And and we'll say this, we'll say this too. Rifle scope mounting is something that you can do, I think we'd all agree, at home. Now, sure, we work at Vortex, and so I guess we know maybe a little bit more than the average guy or gal about rifle scopes. Sure. But this is a pretty easy, relatively easy thing to do. You don't have to take it somewhere, let's say, to a, a gunsmith. In fact, sometimes we know many gunsmiths who mount scopes very well, but we also know some that are gunsmiths and not scopesmiths. They, they know more about guns than we do, but we might know more about scopes than they do. Fair enough. Um, but, uh, you know, this is something that you can do yourself, and when you do it yourself, you can actually ensure it's done properly. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, you hit the nail on the head. That's one thing. We get a lot of folks that call in. They say, I'm very you know, nervous or uneasy doing this myself. I don't want to ruin anything. I don't want to goof my gun up. You know, it's an expensive piece of equipment that you're mounting to another expensive piece of equipment. And it can seem daunting at first, but, but really it's not. I mean, once you get accustomed to this, once you follow the steps and procedures and do it a couple of times, you'll find it, it is not, it is not a daunting process. It's not overly technical. As we went over this gear roster here, it's a few tools and nothing specialty besides the torque wrench. And, and even that is not a, you know, a huge cost incurred or anything like that. It's, it's something that absolutely I do encourage everybody to do themselves rather than paying somebody to do it. Uh, because I think you can save yourself some money, which just equates to more ammo and time on the range. Well, yeah, and you talk about, you know, doing it yourself. I mean, where your rifle scope sits on that rifle, is it's a pretty personal thing, right? Very. It's going to depend, you know, on the person who is ultimately going to be looking through that rifle scope. So if you're maybe taking your rifle scope in to be mounted and you're not there throughout that process to make sure that that eye relief is, is set properly, you know, mm-hmm. you're doing yourself a disservice. So, I mean, that, that's one thing to take into consideration, you know, during that process is, you know, it will literally be matched up to you, your eye, your cheek weld. Um, you know, your personal facial structure is going to be a little bit different than somebody else's. And, and again, by doing that yourself, you're going to be able to accommodate that. Totally. And that's something really we'll probably get into here. So what do you say? I mean, I'd say by this point, everybody's probably got their gear ready to go, sitting at your workbench or wherever it might be. Heck, maybe you're just sitting on top of a uh, cooler out in, out in your garage, right? Let's let's dive in, Ryan. So what's uh, cool. we got the scope, we got the rings. What's the first step? The, the gun right now is mounted in our Tipton vice. We've seen people just uh, use sandbags and a bipod yep. for it too. All you got to do is just have some sort of secure, steady, stable platform where your rifle isn't going to move around too much. Absolutely. First thing I want to point out is we do have a base on this rifle. Uh, so make sure that your rifle has an appropriate base to accept your rings. And there's a variety of rings and bases out there. If you've got some questions on it and you're not quite sure what you got, give us a holler. We can figure it out. But We've got a Picatinny rail on this rifle, or a Picatinny-type rail, I should say. Uh, the slots are cut for Picatinny. And what we'll do is we'll just set the rings on top of it first. So I'm not overly concerned about the you know, the rifle being level at this point or anything else like that, uh, but I am going to set it up on there, and we're just going to get that process rolling. With most rifles, this Ruger American is, is a bit of a deviation from this, but many rifles will just say like a Savage Model 10 or a Remington 700, Winchester Model 70, they have uh, two islands or bridges on the receiver, front and rear. Uh, and when you're running a rail, a lot of times I'm going to recommend that you try to anchor the rings above those islands or those bridges. And those are generally the spot to be in for most shooters. Uh, and that, that is kind of a generalization or, or possibly a guess. But it just seems to work out for modern rifle scopes and most shooters how we are built. So those are like, if, like you said, if the rail was a bridge, <laughs> those would be where the bridge has its anchor points into the ground, right? Correct. That's where the, usually the, the mount screws go into the receiver. Correct. Uh, and one thing for the folks who are listening, you can't really see this, but I've got this habit of always putting the uh, fasteners that anchor the scope rings to the base on the off side of the rifle. So I'm a right-handed shooter, right-handed bolt. I'm facing the, the cross bolts that, that clamp the ring to the rail to the left side. And I have no idea if that's a better or worse thing to do. It is just a force of habit that I have had for as long as I can remember mounting rifle scopes. If anything, I'm just going to recommend that you have the screws facing the same side, both front and rear rings, making sure that we've got as even and kind of congruent and parallel uh, uh, processes as possible. 
Um, so once they're anchored on there and I don't quite have them torqued down fully, uh, I'm going to pull the tops off of the ring screws, or excuse me, the ring caps, and we're going to just set the scope in there. This is handy because we have Eric here. We're going to fit him for this and make sure it's got the proper eye relief. And we chose, so right now, as far as ring height goes, we have a set of 0.9-inch height rings. And that was chosen mostly because we have a 4-16 to Diamondback here. So it's got the 44-millimeter objective, which isn't a huge objective. So we have some, uh, some space there. 0.9 is a fairly low height. It's not the lowest that you can go, but it's a fairly low height. We didn't want to go too low because we don't want Eric here to be smashing his face into the rifle uncomfortably. But we also don't want to go too high so that you're then, you know, have a neck ache trying to hold your head up uh, to get behind the scope, right? So, so in this case, the 0.9-inch height worked pretty well. You know, in fact, actually, now that you just have it sitting in here, right now the rifle scope is just sitting in the rings, no tops on or no caps on because we're going to get the eye relief sort of right for Eric. But I could say even a 50-millimeter bell would fit just fine oh, on this yeah. Ruger American, yep. no Plen doubt. So. Plenty of room even with uh, flip caps on it. So I'm glad we didn't torque it down because now looking at it, I actually want to move the rear ring forward one lug. I've got one available lug. I'm not going to be uh, setting the scope up in any compromised position by keeping it the way it is, but if we can move the rings out as far as possible from each other without getting into some critical areas on the rifle scope, it's just going to translate to better support. Think of it as a wider stance uh, for the rings to support that rifle scope through recoil and through bumps and uh, dings and things that it might encounter. So off it comes, I'm just going to bump that rear or that front ring forward one lug on the rail. Can we talk about those critical areas on the rifle scope too? Because I know you don't want to get your rings or have your rings be clamped down and mounted right next to the point at which your 30 millimeter tube in this case turns into your objective bell correct and right near the sort of uh it almost looks the, like a ball where your turrets are mm -hmm. the turret i always call that the turret saddle the turret yeah the right turret or wrong saddle. that's what i always call it and i, I also I actually also believe right next to the mag uh ring too right Cor correct yeah so basically just those very very extreme edges of the scope tube you would like you want to avoid if if at all possible so as a rule of thumb I will state, I, I personally like to see about three-eighths of an inch as a minimum from the magnification ring, the feature where that assembly itself meets the main tube of the body forward as a minimum. If, if you want to save yourself some time and guesswork, split the middle. So I've got it set up that the rear ring right now is about in the middle of the rearmost portion of the tube. And then on this particular optic, and this is fairly critical with some scopes that have specifically a side parallax adjustment. That parallax cell, if we were to take the skin off of the scope and articulate this knob here, you'll notice that cell move fore and aft. And it's it's not moving very far. Uh, it's only about 125 thousandths of an inch, I think, on average. That is going to be right in front of that turret saddle or turret housing or you know whatever term you want to give it. So try to keep your ring, again, further from that then closer and again split the middle if not favored just a little further forward than on center uh, that's a good place for that it's going to ensure that we're up off of that parallax cell assembly underneath the scope where again we're talking about critical torque areas or critical points on the scope where underneath uh, very sensitive equipment lies and so, if we're forced to just by nature of how the bases work out or something like that this is where really really making sure we have proper torque comes into play because oh yeah. then at least we might be on top of it, but we're not going to be impeding it. Correct. Anyway, so. so at this point, I'm, I'm going to set the ring caps back on the rings, and we're just going to secure them. I'm not going to tighten them because I actually want to move the scope fore and aft. 
I'll have to tilt it side to side to make sure that we get it level. So we just want to put it, you know, enough pressure on the, the fasteners on the tops of the rings to hold the scope, but not completely clamp it down. And then we're going to do some eye relief work here with Eric. This is huge. Eye relief is really big. Yeah. And one thing you'll note, too, is when we do the eye relief on this, uh, on this Dimeback Tactical First Focal Plane or any scope, we want to make sure that we're getting it just right when the scope is on the highest magnification. Bingo. So yep. in this case, it's a 4 to 16. Everything we do as far as setting the scope up for Eric today is going to be on 16 power because by nature of a variable power rifle scope, the highest magnification is the most critical as far as where your eye placement mm -hmm. is, your eye relief, your scope height, things like that. That's what we want to get just right. And if we can get it right on 16 power or if it's 624 and 24 power or whatever it might be, if we can get that just right on that power, then we know we're going to be good on four power or the lowest power because that's super forgiving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, common call we get, especially with high magnification variables, is I've got my scope, I've got it mounted up. You know, when I'm zeroing it at 100 yards, it's great. But when I go to dial out and I'm shooting at four, five, six, seven hundred, a thousand, wherever, the eye box gets really picky and I have to move position and it's very uncomfortable to shoot. I'm encountering all sorts of issues. It's blurry. Yeah, or I'm losing the edges of my field of view. And what this comes from is that, as you said, Jim, that low, or excuse me, that magnification not being set on the highest power. So it is paramount to run it up to the highest. That's the worst point in the rifle scopes you know, eye relief and eye box. So set it up for you, the shooter, so that that worst point is perfect. And then everything beneath there is just going to be even better yet. So it's tempting to put it on the lowest magnification because mm -hmm. it's so easy to see yep. through it on the lowest magnification. So what I've done here is I've, I've set the optic in the rings. It's, it's free moving right now. It's, it's held secure enough that I can, you know, I can adjust it, but it's not flopping around. I can slide it fore and aft and, and side to side to make sure that we get it uh, fairly level. And then I'm just going to hand it off to Eric. And what we want to do is using a natural hold point. So I always, when I've got a customer in the showroom or, or I'm setting it up with somebody there with me, you know, I want you to bring the rifle up as you just normally would and bring it to your, your shoulder. I don't want to see you have to move your head fore and aft on the stock to get a good sight picture. If you find you have to move your head forward, we know we need to bump the scope backward a little bit. And if we have to move our head backwards, we need to bump the scope forward. So again, scope set at 16 power, highest point. I'm going to pass it off to Eric here and shoulder this as you would normally. And I'm just watching him now, and he looks pretty confident. Bring it back up. And I want you to move forward just a little bit. Does it improve or decrease? That, that improved a okay. little bit. So what we're going to do is we're going to bump the scope back just a few taps. Mm. A little bit more? Yeah, a little more yet. And this is, this is where we went to earlier for Mark's uh, statement is if you aren't present when the tech is setting up your rifle and you two are remarkably different heights or you have a different facial structure or you, you know, have shorter arms, longer arms, it can really, really throw you for a loop here. Right. And, you know, while the scope might have been installed exactly perfect per that tech, if it wasn't done for you, it's not done right. Yep, yep. Same thing goes if you're going to the bow shop I was and just going to bring that yeah, up. Yeah, if you go to the bow shop and you're getting your, your bow set up for your length, or excuse me, your draw length, you know, I've got a 29 and a half inch draw length. Ryan Van might have a, a 28 and a half or 27 and a half inch mm -hmm. draw length. He's not going to be able to shoot my bow very well. I'm not going to be able to shoot right. his bow very well. Same thing applies with yep. rifle scopes. Yep. So but, I would say with that last adjustment, it's about spot on there. Bring it up, and I don't have to move my head at all. Perfect. Now, you'll also find that when you're in different shooting positions, it's going to change your head placement on your stock. So if we're standing, I always think of it as kind of like a happy middle ground 
where you're, well, about the middle ground. When you're prone, a lot of times you'll lurch a little more forward on the stock. And so we'll need to take that into consideration too. But a lot of this comes down to technique. For purposes of this conversation and for really any rifle scope mounting procedure, I always say do it standing. On a bench, you can be further back. And like I said, prone, you can be a little too far forward. So let's do it standing. That's going to ensure that we've got really a fairly universal fit. So we've determined that we like the eye relief. This is when kind of the, the part that a lot of folks feel is very daunting is going to occur here. So at this point, let's level the rifle. And we're going to use, again, that CTK precision level. Just going to put it on the Picatinny rail. And the CTK precision level is kind of like a, it's like a bungee cord attached to a flat piece of aluminum that has a bubble level that sticks out to the side. For those of you who, uh, who aren't able to see it, obviously, on the podcast. And so essentially what happens is it rests on top of the Picatinny rail underneath the scope. So it's sandwiched in there between your scope and the Picatinny rail, and it uses the flat portion of the top of the Picatinny rail as its flat portion to level off of. The bungee cord then comes around the bottom of the gun and then kind of bungees back to itself on the other side. And so it holds itself onto that flat of the Picatinny rail. And then the level itself, the, the bubble level, sticks out to the side so that from either the top or the side or behind the rifle, you can see the bubble level to see if the rifle is level, right? Because we want to level two things here, right, Ryan? Yes, correct. We want to level both the rifle and then the scope and have them both be level at the exact same time. Right. Now, I, I did kind of overlook a step here. At this point in time, because we've determined that Eric likes the placement of the optic, we like the placement of the rings relative to the rifle's receiver, we can go ahead and torque the bottoms on there too. So I'm going to quickly do that. I'm going to set the torque wrench, the Vortex adjustable torque wrench, to 45 inch-pounds. And I'm just going to start incrementally applying torque to the fasteners on the base uh, of the optic here from the from the rings. So I'm not camming them over right away. I just want to make sure that we've got good even torque on them. And then uh, as I go through and they start to snug up, you'll hear the torque wrench pop. And that will indicate that we are there. A couple more on the cycle here. So and again, just to reiterate, you know, this connection of the of the ring base to the base of the rifle, you know, Ryan said 45 inch pounds, that's gonna be vastly different than the inch-pounds that we use for the tops mm -hmm. of the ring halves to make totally. that connection. Good point. Right. Right, because in this case, we're connecting, we're connecting rings, which are a fairly relatively bulky metal piece, to a steel or aluminum base, which is essentially... I mean, think about your scope's tube. It's, it's nowhere near as thick as the base of a ring or the base of a rifle, and... Neither of those things, the ring nor the actual base itself, the rail, have complicated precision internals that need to move mm -hmm. and hold zero under recoil. <laughs> yes. They just need to be strong metal things. And I'm a little side note here. Some rifles and their features or different base styles do not provide you with a flat to mount a level on or to index or reference a level on. Certain round top rifles or direct mounts if you're using like a here's a for instance I, I shoot a kimber 84 montana for some of my hunting and really popular ring style from our friends over at tally manufacturing they don't have a flat on the on the ring because the ring and the base are one piece and even their two-piece setups don't have a flat that allow you to find that that reference point on there to level so leveling your rifle can sometimes be a little bit trickier You'll see there are some levels out there that, that go off your barrel. I'll tell you, leveling on a radius is a tricky thing to do. There's a couple of steps 
And a couple of tricks that you can do, you can remove the bolt from the action and you can use the ejection port as a level or you can use the back tang of the rifle to try to find some flat there. But if not, you're going to have to do some precision eyeballing. And we can kind of talk about how important is level here in a bit once we get this part hacked out. But it may not be as important as you think. But for, for what Eric's going to be doing with this rifle, because we are dialing out at extreme distances, hopefully Eric takes the mile target out at the, the extreme. Hoping so. Oh, yeah, there's a mile target, by the way. Surprise. Uh, <laughs> um, Here, I was freaking out about 500. <laughs> it's only 200 or 1,260 more yards to a mile, so you're good from, from 500, yeah. So once... Um, Some quick math. Yeah, right? Drop a box of toothpicks. I can count them all real quick. Uh, <laughs> Once, we, once we've leveled that rifle there, I'm, I'm going to uh, go back through and I'm going to make sure that the ring gaps are good and even. Uh, again, we're not, we're not applying full torque to them yet, uh, but I just want to make sure that the spacing and the gapping on either side of them is nice and even as a starting point. Gap between the bottom portion of the ring and the top portion of the ring. Bingo. Is this something that you do? We have a horizontally split ring right now, mm -hmm. right? So that means that the, the split between the two halves of the ring is horizontal. Correct. Vertically split rings, do you want to go for a nice, clean, even gap on the two gaps? Those, or? those are a little trickier uh, because vertically split rings, it's been our experience, have a very particular method of, of torquing. That, that's very critical just as torque application, not so much as how those gaps look. Uh, in the case of our Pro Series rings, the the tops of the rings must be secured completely first. And you'll actually find that in tightening the tops, you can, and completely, you can, you can bottom the fastener out. It won't actually be biting the scope. It's not applying any torque to the scope at that point in time. It's just completing, you know, the, the radius or the circle in which the scope is, is held. It's like, uh, it's like the cradle at that point. Um, if you were to do them out of order, if you were to do the bottoms first, or if you were to do, you know, an alternating torque pattern, you can actually possibly damage the scope or it won't hold it very securely. And so that, that is something to contend with. If you've got a pair of rings, again, that you, you're unsure of or if they're vertically split and you're wondering what our take is, give us a shout. As a general rule of thumb, vertically split rings, either the bottoms will be tightened completely first or in the case of our Pro Series, the tops. From there, then we'll go through and then properly torque the, the top or the bottom respectively to make sure that it's, it's within spec. Um, quick note on this Diamondback tactical that we're mounting up here. Um, we're going to level the, the optic by using the, it's not exposed right now. We've got the turret cap on it, but I'll call it like the sub turret or the inner turret assembly. We want a surface as close to parallel with the, the horizontal reticle stadia uh, as possible. And that is like without going on the inside of the scope, that is going to be underneath the, the turret cap itself on most rifle scopes, if they're removable. If you find you've got a scope that doesn't have a removable inner turret, like take our Viper HS 2.5 to 10, for example, it's got an outer turret cap that protects that turret assembly, but you really can't get any lower than the turret assembly without disassembling that component, which is more or less unnecessary. So if you've got cap turrets, pull the cap off. If you've got exposed turrets that have removable exteriors to expose an inner, do so. You're going to have the best chance of coming up with level there. So... Just using a little flat uh, screwdriver here on my multi-tool to pull this cap off. While Ryan does that, I'm going to bring up a couple things with these horizontally split rings that we're working with right now. And Ryan was talking about the ring gap there. And one thing 
that some folks don't know, I'd say most folks know, but uh, the operative word there is gap. There is supposed to be a gap between those two ring halves. You want it as even as possible, but they are not meant to touch one another. So that's definitely one thing to think about. And actually, for the listeners, Ryan, as you were tightening those rings, so like I said, we've got horizontally split rings here. We've got uh, four fasteners per ring. Are you tightening those in any particular order or or in a pattern, like maybe like you would tighten lugs on a tire? When we get to the final torquing, yes, we are going to incrementally apply torque in that lug style or crisscross style so that we've got even torque uh, or as close as possible to even torque on each fastener in each ring. Um, and, and everybody's going to have a an interpretation on on what's better. Do you you know, do you go from rear ring to front ring, front ring to rear ring, so on and so forth? I actually go one ring at a time. Again, this is just something that I have done for like 15 years of mounting scopes professionally, and it's worked for me very well. It prevents, I think it prevents a lot more scope rocking or tilting when you are leveling it. And I guess in my practice and execution of this, it seems to have worked out the best overall. So I've just thrown a level on top of that inner turret here. And I've noticed now that my rifle's level, but my scope is not. So I can see that I'm a full bubble off uh, and we need to, you know, re-level that. Uh, So you can just physically grab the scope and rotate it in the ring until it starts to level out. And then I like to take either my finger or just a small tool, like I've got this T-handle wrench here, and just give very light taps on the turret to kind of help knock that scope into level. This is a technique I learned from Ryan McInerney. Like, it actually works pretty well, <laughs> especially when you have a scope that has an adjustable side parallax oh, and yeah. a, and then, of course, a windage turret because then you can use the T-handle to just lightly tap on either the parallax knob or the windage knob, and it just gives it these tiny little minute adjustments to the level that mm-hmm. if you try grabbing the scope, mm-hmm. inevitably what you're going to have happen is you're like, I just needed to move a little, uh, and then it moves way too right. much, and you're like, oh, crud. Okay, so now i got to move it back, and then you're like, a little, uh, too much, and then it just you bounce back and forth. Yep. We call this method the tap-tap-taparoo. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> that is technical. I'm going to make a note on rifle scope leveling relative to rifle leveling, and this is a often... Uh, picked apart argument here and a lot of folks will throw in some interpretation that your your optic has to be dead level to your rifle or you're going to miss your target and there's there's certainly some truth in that but like I said before I've mounted scopes in the field on hunts um, for myself for hunting partners of mine for for customers that I bumped into where they've had something go catastrophically awry or a remount is required and I don't have access to a, a gun vice or levels or anything like that uh, but I do have a calibrated eyechrometer. Uh, which is a fun word, my eyeball, and leveling it as appropriately as possible to the shooter in many instances can be as, if not more important, because let's let's take, for example, like each shooter's personal geometry uh, or the way they hold a rifle. Uh, you will have individual shooter-induced cant. So if I make a rifle completely square and a rifle scope completely square to it, and I hand it to Eric, but Eric introduces two degrees of cant, mm-hmm. just how his bone structure and face structure works out. Well, the whole thing is off, right? So the, the exercise... And in, he's going to think the reticle is candid. Correct. Right. Whereas if I level the optic for Eric, like he cants the rifle his normal amount, and then I level the optic relative to the horizon or the earth or gravity, 
well, theoretically, then he's good to go. Now, for those of you listening that, that are pretty adapted, a lot of this stuff, we know that as we increase the range that we're shooting, um, any error relative to the optics level to the rifle uh, or vice versa is going to extrapolate the further we go out. And that is absolutely true. For a lot of people who are hunting, uh, where you're going to encounter ranges of, say, three or 400 yards or less, this is not so critical. Um, if you're going and you're seeking the tiniest groups possible at 100, 200, 300, 400, or you're shooting something like F-class or PRS, it does behoove you to level the rifle to the optic and vice versa, and then practice shooter form to maintain that level while you're executing the shot. But it's not going to be a deal breaker if you don't have a leveling system to make sure that it is on the bubble. If you can eyeball it and it looks very square to you when you hold it for all intensive purposes in hunting, that is, and I will say this, good enough. You know, again, another story if we're going and we're dialing out very long range, we can start to run into that issue. It'll show itself fairly quickly. But for the majority of folks, if you're doing this and you don't have that level, do not fret. It may not be the end of the world. In fact, backing up to something Jim had mentioned earlier, I had mounted scopes. I'd worked for a sporting goods store long before I came here to Vortex for about six years. And I, I could not tell you how many scopes I've mounted there. It was into the thousands. We did not have a level. We didn't have a leveling system. We did as level as we could to eyeball. And then I would ensure that the customer took it and they liked it. And I can, I can say I've, I've never had anybody come back and say, hey, you know, this was a problem. However, we were hunting in the Midwest. We were hunting deer at ranges of 200 yards or less or, you know, predators, mm -hmm. things like that, or just recreational target shooting. So that is good enough. And, and I've done that for myself in the field as well. So keep that in mind. But uh, at this point in time, I've tapped that scope level. My, my bubble levels look good and, and even with each other. And I'm going to begin applying incremental torque to the ring fasteners uh, on the top. And again, we're going to turn our torque wrench down to about 17 inch pounds, 18 at the max. Another thing here, no Loctite. A lot of folks are worried that the ring screws are going to work loose under recoil. If it's a good ring and they've got good grade fasteners and the torque was done properly, you should not have a problem at 18 inch pounds or less. Our, our, our bottom is 15, top is 18. We found that that works fabulous for a lot of different rifle scopes on all sorts of different rifles and various calibers. You should not run into a ring screw backing out under recoil. It's very, very, very uncommon. Uh, so 18 inch pounds tops and you're good to go there. I got to say, I mean, I've seen us mount this exact torque spec on some very large recoiling rifles mm -hmm. and no issues. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll say that I would prefer, again, even though I have never actually seen it happen, I would prefer to have my rifle scope slip in the rings perhaps a little bit and me realize it and then fix it than to have permanent damage to my right. rifle scope to the point where even if I take it out of the rings, and, and permanent damage because I've over-torqued the rings, right? to that point that even if I take it out of the rings and remount it, it's permanently done. And then I have to send it back in, and of course we'll you know, repair or replace that. We've done it many times, even though it is you know, technically user error. We, we understand how that goes, but I would rather potentially just have a slip. And again, I have not seen this happen yet than to have permanent catastrophic no. failure. Exactly. And I was going to say, so Ryan, you know, you talked about the Loctite there. So <laughs> if a person were to use Loctite, what kind of problems can that induce then? So when we use Loctite, 
and I should say thread locker in general, any liquid thread locking compound, we're actually lubricating that fastener. And if, if you recall the shop class manuals from yesteryear, when you open up a manual and you talk about torquing, any application, whether it's the heads on, on a motor or your, your lug nuts or any kind of torque application, which measured torque is required, there is a difference between what's called dry torque and wet torque. Wet torque lubricated fasteners and threads and threaded receptacles will misappropriate torque by, it's a measurable percentage, but it's fairly wild. We can't say it's going to be 18.6% every time because each individual fastener and each threaded receptacle and the tolerances at which they are held to will have input on this. But as a general rule of thumb, a lubricated thread will torque higher than your torque wrench reads. So if I'm at 18 inch pounds right now, and I were to lubricate these threads with a thread locking compound and then torque them, realistically, I'm over 20. How far over 20? Again, depends on the ring. Um, I've heard from fastener engineers that it can appropriate between 30 and 60%. So you can see how you can become grossly over torqued, mm -hmm. which is a little dab of thread locking compound. So watch that. Again, there's no, no real reason for it. I, I will not recommend it. Sure. Now, what about lapping the rings? Good question. Oh, yeah? So lapping, a process in which we use a, a precision ground bar, a compound on it, like a fluid compound with, um, it's actually kind of closer to like a grease with lapidary compound, like an abrasive in it. Look at it the same as like sanding wood. We're removing very small amounts of materials from the inner surfaces of the rings to make sure that they are concentric. If you can imagine when a ring is machined, you know, if the, if the tool that's cutting that ring skips a little bit, um, or in finishing, if, if it's rough or if there's a high spot, depending on how your rings are made, that's going to translate as a poor fit. So imagine putting on a pair of shoes that isn't quite the right size in one spot, like at the arch or at the heel. Lapping is going to ensure that they have a good and smooth and even fit. And you can usually tell if your rings are going to require lapping when you set the optic in. Uh, before you put the tops on the rings, if you can't move your, your optic fore and aft or side to side, with very little resistance, you know you've got a pinch or a bind somewhere. If you're running a one-piece base when you're doing this and you're still feeling it, general rule of thumb, your rings could use a little bit of a lap. So certainly a way to, to maximize the contact, the surface contact between the ring itself and then the outer tube of your rifle scope. The more contact that we have, the less torque that we need, the more supported your rifle scope is going to be. You have a much higher success, you know, a higher rate of success with, with a mount not slipping under recoil and your scope working properly internally. Yeah. Would you rather like a running back with a football, does he have a higher chance of fumbling the football if he's just gripping it with his fingertips or if he's, you know, got the whole thing tucked in where Correct. he's got it against his chest yep. and his two arms around it. It's kind of the same thing. Right. Exactly. All right. So you've got these leveled up. Yep. We're and now so you're just going to start the torque procedure. Correct. And like I said, I like to do one ring at a time. And, and really what I'm doing now is I'm doing about a quarter turn, no more per fastener. And I want you to watch your bubble level when you're doing this, because you're going to find that as that, as that ring is tightening up, it's going to settle that bubble just slightly off. And right now I've noticed that I've got a little bit of a bias into it. So I'm going to back those off. That was one thing I was going to say, too, is, is you'll notice you'll have them perfect, and the second you start torquing down the rings, it'll start to move on you slightly. Mm -hmm. And I've had a couple of rings in the past where, for whatever reason, it's just going to happen, and so I almost have to preload it mm -hmm. slightly off-level and try and predict the perfect amount of not-levelness to where when I start torquing the ring down, it actually goes into being level. It's a doozy, but it does happen. 
So I am, again, just applying incremental torque, not much. And I, I see I have over-biased my level. I misjudged. And usually if you torque down the right side, the bubble moves to the left. And if you torque down the left side, the bubble moves to the right. Something I found. It's the best part about mounting up the rifle scope. It's the part you got to be the most patient with. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, definitely can take just a little bit of trial and error just to get it just right, like you said, as you go through that torquing process. Mm -hmm. So in this process, to me, seems like this is the foundation which all your accuracy is going to be based on you know, moving forward. Like, you can yeah. get a new barrel on a gun and stuff like that that might, you know, be splitting hairs then, you know, down the road. But from the get-go, this is what you really want to get right to ensure all your, your accuracy. Yeah, and, and we've, we've mentioned before, you know, you talk about getting high-quality rings, bases, a, a high-quality mount if you're using an AR, you know, with a one-piece base or mount or something mm -hmm. like that. And really, the nicest rifle scope in the world and the nicest gun in the world... If they are connected together improperly or with low quality fasteners and rings and things like that, that's the best performance you're going to be able to expect out of them. It's, you know, man, we talk about cars a lot here and it's probably because of me, but if you have a really, really fast car on horrible tires, mm -hmm. it can only be as good as those tires. Yeah. Yep. Because those are the one things that actually touch the road from that really nice car. Hmm. And so the one thing that actually connects your really nice scope and really nice gun, if they're not good, well, who cares how nice they are? Right. That's why I have, you know, my Crossfire 2s, they're connected up to my rifles that, that have Crossfire 2s with precision-matched rings. Yeah. And they're great. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mark once said something to me that, that stuck. When we pair a rifle scope to a rifle... We have just created a system, and every part in that system has to be good or on the same level. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to have total system failure. So to you know, Eric's point earlier, yes, this is a, an extremely critical point in this process, and accuracy and reliability, tracking reliability is going to hinge on this completely. You know, we were talking about lapping rings earlier, you know, using uh, those tools and, and the lapping compound. If a person is going to, you know, find that they need to go through that procedure, is there potential to overlap your rings? Yes, absolutely. And in the case of, of say, our precision match rings, that's a ring that's held in such a high tolerance that if you do lap them, you can bring them out of tolerance, which is certainly not a good thing. We don't want to do that, obviously. So we want to be as close to tolerance as possible. Uh, in that case, we don't recommend lapping those rings at all. So be mindful of this. If, you, if you've got questions on whether or not your rings need to be lapped, you know, consult us. But, but you can generally tell right off the mm. bat, like I said, when, when you go to set that up, if you find that they're tight and you can lap them out, don't go crazy on it, though. We're not looking for a mirror finish. You'll, you'll get a feel for lapping. I actually do it by, believe it or not, sound. Um, when I'm lapping a ring, you can actually hear the pitch in which the ring kind of reverberates. It will change when they lap well. We're not really removing a ton of material anymore. The sound it makes, if this makes sense, is smoother. So anything beyond that, we're just we're really kind of grinding extra elbow grease that isn't super important. So you'll notice you'll get to a point where it kind of goes stagnant. You're just, you know, moving Material so back and forth. You went from Rain Man with the numbers earlier to mm -hmm. like now the, the Ring Whisperer, Stephen Wonder, <laughs> yeah. to with like sound and music. So it, it is, and and again, this comes from experience. But the the rings they do they do ring or sing when you're lapping them, and when you're cutting material away, and this is the same thing. If you've ever run sandpaper over wood grain, 
when you're running a high, or excuse me, a low grit paper, say like a, a 60 grit or an 80 grit over rough wood, it sounds like you're cutting away a lot of material. As you increase your grit count, if you get up to like a 2,000 or 4,000, 6,000 grit wood, and you're running it over wood that is, or excuse me, paper, and you're running it over wood that's getting polished and honed out, it will sound drastically different. It doesn't sound as rough. It sounds much smoother. And you'll get the hang of it. If you do a lot of rings, if you lap a lot of rings, it'll it'll definitely show itself or yeah. you'll hear it. Hopefully you don't have to lap too many because hopefully no. you're just getting really nice rings and you got good bases that you don't have to do that kind of thing. But just like that, okay, so we've done a lot of talking here. Ryan's cammed over the last of the fasteners on that second ring there. Again, he did the first one first. Actually, that's that's what I've done too in the past. I do one ring first, fully get it fully torqued. There it is again. I, I, I thought that would be the only time we said it before, but there it comes a second time. But you get that fully torqued down, and uh, I found then that at least with your second ring, you usually don't have as much of that movement also once you get that first one down. But then you just torque the second one down. It's a little easier. You'd recheck it with the bubble levels once more on the rifle and the scope, and that's it. I mean, realistically speaking, we did a lot of talking about just like the, uh, what am I trying, activity of ring mounting, mm-hmm. so to speak. We did a lot of talking on that here. But really, for those listening, there wasn't a whole lot of steps involved. It's not that daunting of a task. Mm-hmm. It's really just leveling things and getting a proper tool in the torque wrench, which is really the most essential one of all, you know, the torque wrench, and then just torquing it down. I yeah. Guess. Five to 10 minutes. If you've got the tools laid out and, and everything is where it's supposed to be and there's nothing like supremely awry with your setup five to ten minutes and this very rifle will be going out to do vortex extreme again taking a shot at a mile but then you know other than that obviously that's kind of the extreme one but we're going to be doing i mean tons of shots from like five to 1200 yards and boom i mean that's it really it's just using a nice set of rings uh we can't name the exact rings that we're using in this case yet but uh you know and and holding everything together well properly there you have it yep I think it seems complex at first, but when you boil it down, it's a pretty simple process. And I think people, like we talked a little bit earlier, people are tentative to do it, right? Because it is a very critical connection there, but it's definitely a process that's within reach of just about anybody. Yeah, absolutely. That was pretty solid. What do you say we each get a one-sentence last call, and then we'll uh, close it out? Yeah. Ryan, the I'll, mounter. I'll take it away. Is that... Yeah, I'll take is that. that a, is that inappropriate? Uh... To be interpreted. How about that? Uh, when you're setting your rifle scope up, just make sure, if you're going to have a professional do it, make sure that you're present for it. This rifle is going to be individual to you and, and your structure and your, your build. Uh, if, if you're not there to have them do it, you might as well do it at home. So make sure you're present for it. Make sure that the, the setup fits you. Uh, again, highest magnification. Uh, when, you're, when you're setting eye relief, and then the rest, you know, the rest is all in just application execution of the proper tools there. So very individual setup. It, results will vary per individual. So keep that in mind. That was so good. I'm not even going to call him out on the fact that that would have been a really long run-on sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it is Monday. <laughs> Eric? I guess mine would be going off what you just said, Ryan. The individuality of it varies so much from person to person like you guys were saying you know you both like to start at that uh, rear ring and then go to the front where other guys might have a different pattern there whether or not you're an expert on it yet or not keep finding those resources that are going to help you get good at it because then it's just like processing meat you know wild game you get to do it to your specs that you have your style you're going to develop your own style and you'll be able to kind of make it your own 
So mine would be, which I think it's uh, oftentimes human nature to wait to the last minute to do things. But if you haven't gone through this process before, like I said, it's very within reach, pretty simple, get the proper tools and, and go through the correct process and then go to the range and, and try it out make sure everything is mechanically sound and, and working as it should. Uh, and you should be uh, good to go. Sweet. And then my last call, the one sentence thing is hard, so I'm just going to go with it. It'll be short though. My last call is, so out of the hundreds of thousands of scopes that we have out there in the world, we get a lot of calls that come in daily for troubleshooting. And you know, we've mentioned a couple of the potential issues that can happen when the mounting procedure goes incorrectly. And, and Ryan said earlier that 90%, would you say? Or more. Uh, or more of the phone calls we get in could have been solved very simply by mounting the scope properly, either themselves or being present while the person who mounted their scope was mounting it. And it's a simple process, folks. A lot of, everyone can do it, but we've seen how the small details, not having the right tool, not getting your eye relief right, or over-torquing the rings can cause catastrophic events that are extremely frustrating and will make you hate going to the range and just leave you in a complete tizzy. So it's a simple process. There are a couple of things you just really want to make sure you get down pat exactly right. And from there, you're in good shape. Golden. That's my last call. There you have it, folks. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. We appreciate it. Hopefully, you like this one. Let us know what you think. If there's any other kind of like real-time demonstrations via a podcast that you'd like to hear in the future, uh, let us know that as well. Uh, we'll try and put together a PDF for this one, certainly. So anyway, thanks again, everybody. We got to go shoot a match. Eric's got to shoot this gun. Yep. Have a good one. Happy hunting and shooting. All right. That'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show. Maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. Hey, if you were interested in some of the information you heard here too, but you don't want to go all the way back and listen to the whole thing again just to get out one little nugget of information, check out the link in the description because we'll have this in PDF form with uh, pretty much everything that we've talked about. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released so that way you can go back find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.